BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. And I'm David Leonhardt. This is The Argument. Today, we start with the two men at the center of the biggest news story in the world, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And we talk to someone who knew them both, our colleague, Tom Friedman. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of Arab leaders before over the years, but none have ever kept me up till three in the morning talking about their ideas about their economy. Okay. Then Michelle Ross and I tackle the big question behind all of this. Is President Trump's foreign policy destroying the world order? And finally, a recommendation. I, oh, that was amazing. I can taste it. Two weeks ago, a Saudi journalist and dissident named Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He was planning to marry his Turkish fiancée and needed some paperwork. She waited outside for him for four hours. He never came out. As of this taping, he is believed to be dead. His disappearance has created a crisis for the Saudi regime and for the crown prince at the center of the regime, Mohammed bin Salman. And it's a crisis with huge implications for the whole Middle East, for America, and for the rest of the world. And that's our subject today. To start off, Michelle, who is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and what has he been trying to do? So Mohammed bin Salman is the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and he's very young. He's very conversant in the jargon of Silicon Valley and in sort of technological utopianism. And, you know, the Saudis pour a ton of money into lobbying and public relations. In it, Carl writes, by the time 32-year-old Mohammed bin Salman departs the U.S., he will have visited five states plus the District of Columbia, four presidents, five newspapers, uncounted moguls, and Oprah. You know, as a Senate staffer put it to me, he is masterful at tickling the erogenous zones of the American elite. And yet this huge PR blitz sort of obscured the fact that he's also an incredibly brutal, thuggish autocrat, even by Saudi standards. Ross, why do we even care about Saudi Arabia at this moment? We care because Donald Trump and the Trump administration and maybe notably the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, have pushed a lot of chips onto the idea that you can build a Middle East strategy around a even stronger than before alliance with the Saudis. My first foreign trip as president of the United States will be to Saudi Arabia, then Israel. Basically, the Obama White House looked at the mess in the Middle East and said, we're going to pull back and we're going to try and play a balance of power game where we get friendlier with Iran so we don't have to be as invested in Saudi Arabia. And the Trump team came in and said, no, that was ridiculous. The Iranians are our enemies. They're just going to destabilize the region. The Saudis are already our friends, and they're much friendlier to Israel, our other major ally in the region, than other Arab and Muslim powers. Let's double down or even triple down on the alliance and basically build a Middle East strategy around it. 
all of which is now called into question by what appears to be a murder. And so that's the reason people in the United States, elites in the United States, were so excited about MBS, is they saw him as becoming essentially a more reliable ally for the U.S. If the U.S. is going to throw in with Saudi Arabia the way Trump wants to, rather than Obama's balancing act, you want someone in charge of Saudi Arabia who's going to change it. I also, I think you can't underestimate the effect that just Saudi money had on all of this, right? I mean, part of it was maybe ideological and people were excited and it seemed as if he was this breath of fresh air, but he was this breath of fresh air with what seemed like a bottomless bank account willing to invest in all sorts of American industries. Certainly the tech community, very familiar with Saudi money. In the past five years, Saudi investors have participated in funding rounds totaling $8.2 billion in U.S. startups, according to PitchBook. He visited Boeing and had a private meeting with Bill Gates. Lockheed Martin and Saudi Arabia have been doing business together for 53 years. And so, you know, I think part of it was probably that people liked what he represented, but people also just saw a lot of opportunity in MBS. And that, I think, motivated them to overlook a lot of the truly cruel and terrible things he was doing. Yes, there was a view among a lot of people that MBS really had the potential to change Saudi society. One of the most prominent people who held that view, of course, is our colleague, Tom Friedman, who's been covering the Middle East for 40 years. Tom's won three Pulitzer Prizes. And last year, Tom wrote a series of columns on Saudi Arabia, arguing that MBS was flawed, but that perfect wasn't on the menu. And Tom was pretty optimistic about what MBS could do for Saudi Arabia. Those columns got a ton of criticism. The critics said that MBS wasn't a real reformer, that he was just pretending to be one. And now that the story has taken a dark turn, one question that I have is how does Tom feel today about Saudi Arabia and about the crown prince? He's on the road this week, but I asked him if he would take a few minutes to come on the show and talk with me about all of this. Let's listen to that now, and then we'll come back to talk about the big picture and where the story goes from here. Hey, Tom, how are you? Good, David. How are you? Good. Let's start with this. When was the last time that you saw Jamal Khashoggi? By pure coincidence, I was going out to lunch in late August, and uh, we bumped into each other at the intersection of 17th and K in Washington, D.C. We were literally standing on on the sidewalk uh, across from Pret-a-Manger, And we were basically exchanging impressions about what was going on in Saudi Arabia. We were both concerned about the waves of arrests uh, of people from the left, right, and center in Saudi Arabia. And he urged me in the strongest possible terms to um, step up my criticism of MBS. And, um, And that was the last time I saw him. Where were you when you first heard that he had disappeared? Do you remember? I believe I was in Washington, D.C., I was home when I heard that he had disappeared. And how did you feel? Jamel was a teddy bear of a man, warm and easily laughed. And the notion of 15 people or how many beating up this unarmed, innocent man, it it made me physically ill. It made me sick to my stomach. You obviously know the other big player in the story too, right? Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. When did you first meet him? Yeah, I I am probably one of the few people who uh, has interviewed both of them. Uh, I first met him when he was deputy crown prince. We went to his office, and and he really talked um, almost entirely about the economic reform and the religious reforms that he wanted to uh, institute in Saudi Arabia. 
And what did you see in MBS that made you think that he had the ability to change this in a way that no one in the kingdom previously had? Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of Arab leaders before over the years, but none have ever kept me up till three in the morning talking about their ideas about their economy, okay, how to diversify their economy, or talking about publicly and on the record questions of faith and religion and their willingness and desire to take on the worst uh, Islamist ideologues. Never seen that before. Do you now think you were wrong about MBS? I don't regret, David, for a second believing that if this young man could carry out the things he was talking about, it would be hugely important for Saudi Arabia, hugely important for the Arab world, and hugely important for America. And that's why I thought it deserved attention, encouragement. And as I said in my interview with him, only a a fool would predict his success. But in my view, only a fool would root against it. That was my view then. It remained my view until this whole Jamal event. This is what occurs to me. You obviously had high hopes for MBS, and you've also obviously been disappointed. The things you pointed out from the beginning as his flaws and his shortcomings have turned out to be really important. Do you still have any hopes? Do you think he could still succeed as a reformer? We always, um, around the world in American foreign policy, have a tension between our values and our interests. And Saudi Arabia, especially right now, is going to give us the mother of all tests on that issue because our values, my values, are that no country should be allowed to murder a journalist in their consulate who innocently comes there for a visa. On the other side, You have President Trump saying, but wait a minute, these guys buy $110 billion in arms. They are our ally in the war, um, in the confrontation with Iran. And they're one of the world's biggest oil producers. we got to think about that too. And I think going forward, you're going to see a huge clash between our values and our interests. I, as a journalist, I stand with our values. But my point is that as we think about our interests um, in Saudi Arabia— I think that we have to think beyond arms and oil and Iran. We have to think about this issue of religious reform. Who can undertake that project if MBS is ousted or if MBS is neutralized or if MBS is forced off that path? Baked into that seems to be an important idea. Does that mean that you think MBS as a meaningful reformer is finished? I just can't see how he will be taken seriously. Uh, abroad as a reformer, how anyone can engage with him. But I don't see how he cannot be King David because he's basically wiped out all his rivals. There is no natural, obvious alternative power center to him within the bin Salman family. And uh, so that's also going to be just a huge quandary uh, for the Saudis to sort out and, and us to sort out. So, okay, let's spin this forward. If the U.S. does sanction Saudi Arabia in some major way, how do you think the kingdom reacts? MBS, I think, cannot be king if he is found to have ordered this killing. And as I said, I think he probably has. Uh, But he can't not be king because there is no obvious alternative. One thing that occurs to me is with Trump saying that it might be rogue killers, we've seen both Trump and the Saudi government before 
basically be willing to completely ignore reality out of convenience. (laughs) Can you see some way in which we get that there, in which everyone says it's a rogue killer, no one actually believes it, but that's what keeps the relationship going between the Trump administration uh, and the kingdom? Jamal Khashoggi was a a wonderful man, and he was also a columnist for The Washington Post. The Washington Post is owned by a person named Jeff Bezos, who almost has as much money as Saudi Arabia. Um, And our brothers and sisters at The Post are not going to let this matter die so easily. And I would argue in a world of social networks and Instagram, the old easy outs on these things, you know, blame a rogue operation, uh, let them take the fall and everyone marches forward, not going to be possible. Look at this this financing conference they're about to have in Saudi Arabia and how basically, I would argue, social networks has forced virtually every CEO um, who was going there, prominent one, now to back out. And we're in a different age. So the idea that Trump and MBS and the Saudis and, and the Turks can all quietly work a deal and then we all go home, I don't think that that is available right now. Do you, did Trump help cause this? Did his stance on, did Trump's stance on Saudi Arabia help create the conditions that made MBS feel empowered to do this? I believe so. Um, I have good sources in Saudi Arabia, and they were warning me that MBS had been surrounded by these hardcore security types, testosterone-filled young guys who think they could sort of were, were, were bulletproof, and they had adopted the, quote, China model. So the China model is their notion that China could seize these islands in the South China Sea, the world would complain, the Chinese would tell everyone to get lost, and eventually the world would just accommodate itself. You have to step in and curb uh, these impulses and these people around him. And Tom, remind us, what are the stakes here? Why does this matter? Well, this matters because Saudi Arabia is um, one of the world's largest oil producers. It's against uh, Iran. It's involved in a, in a murderous and messy war in Yemen. It's one of our biggest arms purchasers. All of that is hugely important. But for me, Over and above all that, Saudi Arabia was the source of the ideology that inspired both the al-Qaeda attackers of 9-11 and ISIS. And if we lose the trend that it was tentatively going on down to reverse that ideology, and this country could become a failed state, um, ISIS will look like a day at the beach. What does the worst case scenario look like? I think the worst case scenario is that you get a real crack up of the Saudi ruling family over this. And what's the best case, if I may be so optimistic? You know, when you order the killing of an innocent journalist in your own consulate in Istanbul, I don't see where the best case is available anymore. And so where should we want our government policy to go on this? Um... David, I have to tell you, I'm still thinking that out. I'm, I'm wrestling with that because um, I know where my values are, that this is simply intolerable. If they walk away from this, every journalist in the world is imperiled, and I'm a journalist. And uh, at the same time, I will weep if the religious reform process in Saudi Arabia grinds to a halt. And so I'm just utterly conflicted, but most of all just angry at the unfathomable evil and the unspeakable stupidity of killing Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Thank you, Tom, for getting on the phone. I will see you back in Washington. Pleasure.
So now we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, Ross, Michelle, and I will talk about the larger implications of this story. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. I'm back now with Michelle and Ross, and now we want to put this Saudi Arabia story into a larger context, which is that many people believe the Trump administration is emboldening autocracies around the world. Just in the last few weeks, we've had the rape and murder of a Bulgarian journalist. We've had the head of Interpol disappear when visiting his native China. And obviously, we've had Trump pull way back from NATO and really the entire post-World War II Western alliance. I'll see NATO and I'm going to tell NATO you got to start paying your bills. The United States is not going to take care of everything. All of which raises an important question. Is President Trump destroying the world order? I'm deeply worried that the answer to that question is yes. But Ross, what do you think? I think the answer so far is no, to an extent that has surprised me, actually. Um, I was against Trump during the 2016 campaign in part because I felt that his combination of fecklessness inexperience and hair-trigger aggression were likely to embolden bad actors around the world and have a dramatically destabilizing effect. And that hasn't happened, at least not at all to the extent that I expected. And, you know, the laundry list of signs of instability that people tend to read, poisonings and murders and arrests and so on, we aren't talking about cross-border aggression. Um, We aren't talking about anything even on the level of what Putin and Russia got up to under Barack Obama. And instead, what's been happening is sort of brinksmanship with North Korea that has led to a perhaps temporary but a seeming era of good feelings, a pivot to Asia of the kind that the Obama administration hoped for. And then around NATO, you know, Trump's bark has just been much worse than his bite. So that's sort of my counter list. I I look around the world and I see Trump sort of cutting into a lot of moral capital that the U.S. has built up, and I'm worried by that, but I don't see destabilization of the kind that a lot of people see. To me, that's such a funny argument in a way for a conservative to make, that basically we can sort of jettison a lot of the institutional framework of the last 70 years, and because that hasn't had obviously catastrophic results in the last 18 months. We don't need to worry about it, right? I mean, it seems to me that on the one hand, it's true. Trump has not started any wars and bullying rhetoric mixed with an extreme aversion to confrontation, which seems to be a hallmark of his personal style, is also a hallmark of his political style, right? But the fact that 
we haven't needed the NATO alliance or that we haven't needed Canada. We haven't needed any of these relationships in the last couple of months. It seems kind of ridiculous to extrapolate from that and say, well, we can get by without that. We can get by being kind of a a lone rogue state hated by all except for our fellow autocrats. I mean, eventually, presumably, there will come another time when we will want these countries to come to our aid. Um, We're eroding all the foundations now. We're destroying all these alliances. We're destroying the whole idea of morality as a operative force in American foreign policy. And there are going to be downstream effects of that. The only question really is when. We're already starting to see them, and it's going to get worse. Look, clearly neither the Bush nor Obama foreign policies were perfect, but this still does seem different. I thought one thing that captured that was a column in The Washington Post by Robert Kagan, the foreign policy analyst. It's called Welcome to the Jungle. And the jungle, as Robert Kagan writes, is the breakdown of the liberal world order the United States once upheld. Do you think that's wrong, Ross, or do you, are you not afraid of the jungle? All right. So, look, I grew up reading Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan's a really smart guy. He knows more about foreign policy and grand strategy than I ever will. But Robert Kagan and all of the people like him were responsible for the invasion of Iraq. And to me, I just don't have a level of trust built up in those establishment figures because I feel like most of the dangers in the world have been exacerbated by establishment figures talking about morality and the responsibility to protect civilians in the case of the Libya intervention and the idea we're going to spread democracy in Iraq with the Bush administration. And Trump is a correction to that. And I agree with Michelle. He's a correction that may go too far. But I don't think it's necessarily true that we've destroyed NAFTA by renegotiating it. I don't think it's necessarily true that we've destroyed NATO by making a bunch of noises about how European countries should spend more when they should spend more. If we were pulling troops out of Eastern Europe, if we were building a wall along the Canadian border, I would be sitting here saying, yeah, my fears were correct. Trump is actually destroying the world order. As it is, I've still got fears, but... I think that the foreign policy mistakes made by prior presidents have been worse than anything Trump has done so far. But so you like the NATO and the NAFTA toughness, but don't you also have to be really afraid of this new permissiveness of autocracy? He does seem to be emboldening autocrats all around the world. But, I mean, we lived through the Obama era, David, where every conservative commentator spent all of this time saying, Obama is showing all this weakness and emboldening all of these autocrats and so on. And I expect that during that era, you sort of rolled your eyes at that and said, no, Obama's being a realist and you can't expect the United States to send 100,000 troops to save Crimea from Putin and so on. Obama's doing strategic rebalancing in the aftermath of the Iraq war. Why can't the same be true of Trump? Why is it worse when a journalist gets killed than it was when Putin went to war in Georgia or Crimea or eastern Ukraine? Why are you more worried now I mean, I understand you're more worried because Trump is personally unstable and feckless. I I share that worry. I'm just saying in terms of the facts on the ground, I'm not sure the landscape has dramatically changed for the worse. I think some things have changed for the worse. Look, I agree with you that the Obama policy in Syria ended up not working well, right? I don't know what would have worked better, but a huge number of people died and the Obama administration failed to stop that. I guess I think that does not excuse the fact that we really do seem to be seeing 
a new aggressiveness from autocrats all around the world. And I think Trump has helped cause that. And I think you can simultaneously say Iraq was a disaster. Obama uh, did not do well in Syria, made some massive mistakes. And Trump is making the world a harsher place. And there's also just a kind of fundamental difference between saying that Obama didn't do enough to contain aggression by, say, Russia or other countries. That's different than the than what Trump is doing, which is almost cheering them on, right? I mean, when, when Trump talks about how journalists are enemies of the people and it maybe doesn't even really, you know, maybe we shouldn't get that upset about Khashoggi. He wasn't even American. I mean, we work for The New York Times. We have non-American staff operating in countries all over the world. The fact that the president of the United States has basically declared that it's open season on them and speaks about journalists in the same way that Vladimir Putin and MBS and all sorts of other authoritarian thugs speaks about journalists. Um, You know, forgive me if that sounds like special pleading, like we should be more concerned about journalists than other kinds of people. But there's just, again, there's a difference between saying that you're not doing enough to stand up to autocrats and that you're maybe retreating from kind of American adventurism and basically joining in the axis of autocrats. So... I want to say that Donald Trump's rhetoric around journalists is just bad, full stop. Let me ask you each this. What's the foreign policy that you dream of? If you were trying to advise a presidential candidate, forget about what party it would be, what do you consider to be the most important thing for the United States to do right now in its foreign policy? I mean, I will, you know, make the brazen claim that it would look like some of what Trump is doing, but without Trump's obvious contempt for human rights and obvious disinterest in democracy and without his personal corruption, which we haven't really talked about, but which does also raise questions about his dealings with Saudi Arabia, these trade deals and everything else. But if you strip that away, I think the basic outline of trying to contain Russia in its European near abroad, work with Russia in the Middle East, because you have to, and sort of maneuver to contain and push back on China in the Far East, strengthening our alliance with Japan, doing something experimental in the Korean Peninsula, strengthening our alliance with India. That doesn't seem crazy to me. It's it's not a perfect grand strategy because there isn't a perfect grand strategy, but it's not a crazy one at all. And Michelle, what what do you hope the Democrats in 2020 offer? Voters aren't going to vote on foreign policy, but they'll be making important decisions, these candidates. What do you hope they offer as a counter to Trumpism foreign policy? So so this is a little bit simplified, but I think that, um, you know, right now there is this huge democratic recession all around the world, right? Democracy is in retreat in many, many countries, some of them which were wavering on the border between autocracy and democracy. Some of them had actually been democracies that are now becoming far more authoritarian. I would like to see a kind of alliance of democracies, just as we now have this access of authoritarianism. And I would like the United States to be part of the alliance of democracies instead of part of the axis of authoritarianism, right? I mean, it frequently feels to me like we're reentering some sort of pre-World War II side, except who's on the side of the allies? Um, I mean, it feels like this sort of like dystopian man in a high castle kind of environment in which, you know, the fascists are on the rise. And I think we should be on the side of democracy, you know? And instead, 
we're on the wrong side of these issues, right? We're part of the problem instead of part of the potential counterweight. So we have Michelle's League of Democracies, and we have my ruthless Kissingerian contained China mocked politique. What what are you going to give us as the middle way, David? Well, maybe predictably, I am going to try to to build a middle way between those two. Look, I think a tougher-minded, more real politic approach to China is absolutely right. Because I think China is the main threat to the United States, and not just to the United States economically, but to our interests in the world, to democracy over the long term. And so a tougher-nosed approach to China, a somewhat less uh, naive approach to the world, Bush and Obama both had their naivete. It was very different. So, Ross, I buy that criticism. But I am much more concerned than you are about what Trump is doing to undermine the basic notion of democracy around the world. And so I like Michelle's idea of an alliance of democracies. And I actually think the kind of tough-nosed approach that you are attributing to Trump, if done effectively rather than Trumpianly, would help lead to the alliance of democracies because I really do worry very deeply that we are in the beginning stages of a cycle in which democracy and a lot of universal human values that we all care about, all three of us and the vast majority of Americans, are in retreat in a way that we have not seen in our lifetime and that I frankly never expected to see. And that makes me deeply anxious. Today's subject has obviously been pretty intense, and the news these days is often pretty intense, which is why our plan is to usually end this show on a lighter note, to give you a break from the news. Each week, we're going to give you a recommendation. Today, it's my turn, and my recommendation is seltzer. All day, all the time, even for breakfast. I, oh, Whoa. that was amazing. I can taste it. That actually right is now. the problem with seltzer, which is they, they, they often explode just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, I recently gave up my morning juice, something that I could not have fathomed doing for most of my life. It was just a little bit of sunshine every morning, those five or six ounces of orange juice. And I read an article in the New York Times that said, look, you actually don't need your juice. And I've replaced it with seltzer. And I know it's ascetic, uh, but my attitude is the only way to eat healthy in this country is essentially to consciously rebel against the sick food culture we have. And then you can be healthy and you can enjoy food, but you really have to think about it. It blows me away that you've been drinking juice every morning. Just I'm, because... I'm stunned. <laughs> Why? Just because I mean, you never like had you as a juice guy, and you're not seven. Just because you feel like everyone else got to the anti-juice well, position before I don't know. I, I just, you know, maybe it's because I'm female, but I, you know, sort of, I feel like I learned when I was 10 that juice is empty calories. And yet Americans drink massive quantities of juice. So <laughs> even if I'm behind the times, it is, I am sort of typical, I think. Do you remember your last glass of juice? I do not. Does and it I, float in your imagination? I actually, Orange and perfect? Well, I can sort of taste it, but I actually think it's good that I didn't know, right? Sometimes you're making a transition that is just so emotionally painful that you just got to do it. And I just decided then and there, there would be no more juice. That's what you got to do. That's how I quit smoking. Do you like seltzer? I love seltzer. Right. I, well, see, that's... Do I mean, you like seltzer? So seltzer... So, so I was way ahead of everybody in America, right? Because my mother was a huge health food person before there was a Whole Foods. When to get, like, tofu, you had to go into some sawdust-covered, hippie-run alternative store and get a huge block of tofu plucked with tongs out of some deep, disgusting lake of goo. 
So we drank tons of seltzer when I was a kid. And I've given up most of the health food because tofu is horrible and I can't believe people eat it. But I kept the seltzer because seltzer is fantastic. It's all the fun of soda with none of the guilt. That's exactly right. I mean, it's basically a miracle drug, right? Which is it's pleasurable to drink and it has no calories. I drink at least 20 cans of seltzer in a typical week, and I'm not ashamed. And I actually should use this occasion to apologize to my wife because she has been drinking seltzer for breakfast for years, and I thought it was a little weird. And now I sit next to her and we have huge glasses of seltzer for breakfast. And My and wife is better. very anti-seltzer, so your marriage is like one step ahead of ours. Okay, thanks everyone for joining us. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at argument at nytimes.com with feedback or questions. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin and Ryan Kyloff for Transmitter Media. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Brad Fisher is our technical manager. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next week. Is that what you want? Okay. <laughs> That's what I want. That's the whole show. <laughs>